0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: So welcome again to another Invested Investor podcast. Today we have Jonathan Milner, who I've known for about seven or eight years, a stellar example of an entrepreneur and angel investor. and We're going to talk through his life. And what he's learnt over the last 15 or 20 years of being an angel. So first of all, Jonathan, welcome. And can you just describe some of your background and what led you into being an entrepreneur? Yes, of course. I'm mean, delighted to be here.
0: I suppose my greatest inspiration was actually my father. So my father actually was an engineer by background and a successful engineer as well. But at school, he was given a report which said he would never be a leader of men. And he actually went on to lead 5,000 people in John Brown Engineering, in Daniels Hamilton, in the Cotswolds. And then later on, had his own light engineering company down in Portsmouth. And so I actually moved down to Portsmouth with my family for him to start his light engineering company. So my start in life was actually during A-levels when I got really interested in biology. And I had an incredible biology teacher, very inspirational So I decided that I was going to do some sort of biology, whether it's medicine or biology at university, and ended up applying for applied biology at Bath University from 1984 to 1988. And that was a fabulous sandwich course where you went away on placement and worked somewhere for six months and then came back to the university to study for six months it was a fabulous.
1: So where did you go? Where, where were you on placement?
0: My first placement was looking at bark beetles in the Welsh forests and doing biological control of bark beetles. Fabulous experience for an 18-year-old to be out there chopping down trees and searching for bark beetles. So that was my first placement. And then I went to the Leicester Centre, where I got a passion for genetics and yeast genetics and that was the hot subject at the time. And then I ended up at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, right. again doing yeast genetics. Right. And that was my passion at that point, and I thought I was going to follow that passion. So I got accepted for a place at Dundee University to do my PhD. In what subject? In molecular biology of yeast genetics.
1: What's yeast genetics? Yeast genetics. Oh, yeast. So, so yeast yeah, yeast yeah. genetics is
0: fascinating because the whole way that we've managed to work out how human cells replicate and divide, was through looking at yeast. Yes. And the pioneer there was a Nobel Prize winner, of course, Paul Nurse, right. and he was my hero at the right. time. Yeah. He was you know, making really incredible, groundbreaking discoveries that led to all the cell cycle genes and everything we know about the cell cycle in the human homologues of these genes that were found subsequently. Right. So it seems a bit bizarre thinking about yeast genetics. How can that help? And it was absolutely fundamental in our current understanding of how human cells go wrong in health and disease. Yeah. So I was all ready to go to Dundee, but unfortunately my father became very ill. He contracted lung cancer, and I didn't want to move so far away. Um, he was living at Portsmouth at that time, so I wanted to stay nearer. So I accepted a position not in yeast genetics, but I found one at uh, Leicester University, doing molecular biology on a bacterium. This was your PhD? Obviously. This is my PhD, PhD yeah, yes, so. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So I had a wonderful time in Leicester doing this work on bacterial genes, actually, pathology genes. And then central to the story, which is all coming together of how I ended up being an entrepreneur and agent investor and CEO of Abcam, etc., is the fact that at Leicester I met my wife, Rosie. And she was from Greece, and she was going to go back to Greece. And I said, well, why don't you stay here? I'll find some work here. You can find some work here. Um, She's an artist, and she wanted to do an art gallery management position. So she wanted to find one of those in England somewhere. So we both moved to Bath, and I took a postdoc position at Bath doing antibody engineering and that was the pioneering was time this, 92 of,
1: 93 this was 92 yeah, 93 yeah.
0: and mm. it was just at the time when cat uh, cambridge yes. antibody technology was getting going so i got to know all the guys from cat so i spent yes. a bit of time up in cambridge meeting them great guys mm. uh, john mccafferty kevin johnson david chiswell it was a fabulous time mm. so that was my first sort of insight into antibody engineering and I was already, after that postdoc in Bath, I was all ready to then move on to the next phase of my career, which I'd got my heart set on joining Cambridge Antibody Technology. Yeah. So I came out for my dream job, yeah. if you like. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Had the interview for that. Um, failed spectacularly. <laughs> Impossible to believe at this point in time. Failed spectacularly to get into Cambridge Antibody Technology. And actually it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. So then I thought, well, this is a bit of a shame because Rosie at that point had finally found a job managing a gallery in Cambridge Contemporary Art. And so I thought, well, I'd better get a job. And I was flipping through all the job ads and I saw this one come up at the university in Professor Tony Cousery, lab. Right. And I thought, well, there's not a hope in hell that I'm going to be able to go to this top, top lab with this incredible scientist who's making... Huge strides in oncology and cancer Mm. research, but I thought I'd chance it. (laughs) So I turned up for the interview and um, just met Tony. And for some reason, we just gelled Mm. and we just got on like a house on fire. So it was, um, you've got the job. And then I said, oh, thank you. And it was only afterwards when I said to him, I said, did you actually read my CV? And he said, oh, no, I didn't need to read your CV. You were just. Really character, good. And, purely and, character. And I thought you'd be good for the lab, so, <laughs> so I just employed you for that. Yeah. So then there I was in Cambridge, and not being from Cambridge myself, yeah. and, you know, it, yeah. it was the most incredible experience, the most incredible three years of my life in the top lab, working with the top people, making groundbreaking discoveries. My project was on breast cancer research. We were well-funded. It was mentally hugely stimulating, that was an absolutely
1: incredible experience. But of course, then a major change happens. You go from a top laboratory into being a lowly, inverted commas, in terms of income and stress, I suspect, entrepreneur. How did that happen?
0: Yeah, so the point came when I was thinking very carefully about what was my next step in the career. And I realized that I probably wasn't going to be like Tony. I wasn't ever going to be a top academic, and I certainly wasn't going to win a Nobel Prize. And I'd always been quite entrepreneurial, inspired by my father. So I started to think about going into business and how I could do that. And then one day, I was working in the lab alongside a young medical scientist called Luke Hughes-Davis. He's an oncologist actually, top, top oncologist in Cambridge now. And Luke just said to me, he said, I can't stand these antibodies. They're really rubbish. You know what, Johnny, we ought to make a company. Why don't we start a company making antibodies? It would have been one of those throwaway lines, yeah. which never went anywhere. Right. But it started me thinking, and it started me on this sort of, what I would call an entrepreneurial seizure. And I couldn't get this out of my mind. You're right. <laughs> and so I started to talk to Luke about it. So we'd go for coffee together and we'd say, are we really serious about this? How are we going to make the antibodies then? And Luke would say, don't worry, my uncle, he's a sheep farm in Wales, and we're going to make the antibodies in the sheep in Wales. And then we're going to be able to harvest the antibodies from the blood. And then my uncle can sell the sheep in the market. So it's all quite environmentally friendly, no wastage or anything like this. (laughs) And naively, I thought this was the answer. This is fantastic. And I think, to be honest with you, the idea wouldn't have gone much further had it not been for a bit of serendipity yes a a large amount of serendipity a large amount of serendipity serendipity. and this is where the story comes full circle back to rosie Mm. because rosie as i told you was working in the art gallery cambridge contemporary art and she was working alongside ros cleveland and one year they decided to have a christmas dinner and they couldn't find anywhere in December, so it was actually in January. So we were having a Christmas dinner in January, and it was all the hangers-on and partners, boyfriends, yeah, partners, so husband, husbands, etc., yeah, yeah. with Ros and Rosie and others at this Christmas dinner in one of the colleges. And I happened to be sitting next to David, and David, a very inquisitive person, hugely chatty, very extrovert, so he was saying, well, what are you doing with, you know, what are you going to do with your career? And I started to say to him, well, I've come to this point. I've had a fantastic time in Tony's lab. And I'm really thinking of starting a business. And David was incredible. Instead of sort of dismissing it or anything like that, he said, oh, tell me about this. So I I started to tell him about, well, it's antibodies. And uh, these are used in all sorts of research and in diagnostics. And increasingly, you know, there was going to be therapeutics as well coming out. And he started to get really interested in this story. So he said, well, come and see me next Saturday. Come to my office and we'll have a chat about you know, what, what your are
1: So when was this, is. early 97, 98? So
0: this was 1998. Yeah. January 1998. I remember clearly... Telling, Going to his office at the top of his house. Well, it was actually on Castle Hill in Analysis. Yes. So David was still running and owning yes. Analysis. And I hadn't realised how... Well-known and successful already David was, right. which was probably a good thing, because I think I would have been a bit nervous. Yes. So <laughs> yes. He, he put me at ease. Yes. And then we went to his office and David said, well, tell me your idea. So I said, well, I've got this friend and he's got an uncle in Wales and we're going to make the sheep and this and that and... I could see David starting to
1: lose interest at this point. (laughs) Because he's a technical background, but not a life sciences background, of course. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And then David said to me, So, how much does it cost to make one of these units of antibody? And I said to him, It's about three to five pounds for a unit of antibody. And then he said, What do you sell these for? And I said, They sell for about 150, 200 pounds. And at that point, (laughs) he got interested of course i hadn't explained to him that actually it's quite risky making antibodies and most of the ones you make are not going to be popular to sell so right. it's actually quite difficult you need to make a lot of different types of antibodies before you hit on the ones that are actually going to, to sell but that was part of the business model that would come out later with david's
1: coaching yes excellent but there's a great story that flips around about you in an ice bucket so can we share that with the listeners
0: Absolutely. So coming back to David, David was incredibly generous with his time and mentored me through transitioning from a pure academic where you only have one thing to concentrate on in the lab, which is to do your experiment. And it's, it's actually, you know, very rewarding and fulfilling, but your mind is just purely on one thing. And so it's quite relaxing. You almost get in the zen zone when you're doing experiments. And I realised very early on, that being a an entrepreneur and trying to get a business off the ground, your mind has to flip really quickly between, you know, interviewing, between doing the cash flow, between trying to get customers, between making sure the investors are happy, that you're raising money. Mm. All of these things was incredibly stressful for me. And David managed to coach me through these. Then the Ice Bucket story really comes in because there were very, very dark times when I was really, really struggling with everything and it was all becoming too you much. You'd had some
1: finance at this point, had so At this
0: point, David had put some money in and yes. um, my wife allowed me to... Well, she was my girlfriend at the time, actually, even more generous. She said that we could remortgage our newly-bought house in Mawson Road and I trotted into David's office clutching a cheque for £11,000. David looked at it and said, that's not going to be enough. (laughs) So David put in £40,000. and Which allowed you to stop working for the university then? That's right. At that point, we were getting into the summer and my contract was ending during the summer months. So Tony allowed me very generously to stay on and he knew that I was working in my spare time on the business with David. And then Tony joined us in the business as
1: well as a director very, very early on. They didn't leave his role, though, in the university, did they? Oh, he? No, no, no. no,
0: no, no. Tony's no, no, very no, no, much. He's still there, isn't he? Still, he still there, there. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So you'd raised a bit of money, but you said you were getting desperate, so you, you wandered around Cambridge with an ice bucket with some antibodies in, I believe.
0: Well, that's right. So we'd raised this money. We were burning that very fast. I, foolishly, I'd spent it too quickly, and I learned a lesson. I'd bought a load of stock not calculating that it would be difficult to sell. Right. (laughs) It was the first lesson. It was a really hard lesson. Fundamental lesson (laughs) Fundamental lesson. So I was stuck with this stock that I couldn't sell and absolutely desperate to get money through the door. Right. So we were within two weeks of going bankrupt. So in desperation, I just thought, well, I've got to get out there. So I grabbed a load of antibodies, (laughs) put them into an ice bucket... (laughs) And I just went to all the labs that I knew and all the people I knew, and I just literally blagged my We're collecting £10 Well, I was just knocking on the door saying, would you like to buy these antibodies? And they didn't want to buy these <laughs> antibodies, but it didn't matter. It absolutely didn't matter. And it absolutely transformed the company. Without me having done this, Abcam would have gone nowhere. And the reason for that is because they looked in the ice bucket and they said, well, I don't want that antibody, and I don't want that antibody. And bear in mind there's thousands, and thousands of different products, so trying to predict the antibody you want is very difficult. And then they said, but I'm having trouble making antibodies. Can you make me this antibody? So I just said, yes. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll make you the antibody. And so I started a contract business, bringing in contract work where I'd manage the manufacture of these antibodies, outsourced the manufacturing to a manufacturer that was so much better than the So you swapped to a universe. service
1: model rather than the product model. So the yes. service model
0: yeah. came in, and the service model was the foundation for the cash flow, yes. which got Abcam going because otherwise it
1: wouldn't have survived. Should we pointed out to listen to so this business is now worth a couple of billion, the market cap? I think, I think last time it was sort of two point three billion pounds say, market pounds cap. Market yeah, cap. so we're talking yeah. here from yeah. bankruptcy. It's the longest journey, it took 20 years or 19 years? Well, it's 20 years now, yeah. Yeah, this, yes. so you must be having your 20th anniversary this We're year. We're having right? the 20th anniversary this year. I know that Sir Michael Marshall was an early investor and a huge supporter of you over the years. Can you tell me about the first funding round?
0: We got us some cash flow in from the service business, yeah. but we still needed to raise the money to finance the web platform, employ people, what have you. And so David introduced me to his network within... Cambridge. And that was really, really important because without those introductions, I wouldn't have been able to get the finance in. So right. this was the network that we're all familiar with yeah. in Cambridge. Herman Hauser, Peter Doerr, Stephen Thomas, etc. all David's friends and yes. fellow angel investors. And they invested in Abcam very early yeah. on.
1: How much did they put in that round? Do you remember? That round
0: was about 200k. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the total amount of money
1: we took was no more than 450k before you floated. Before, before. we floated, yeah. That's phenomenal. Isn't yeah. It? And what was the market capitalization on the day of float? It was just over 50 million. <laughs> that's <laughs> it's phenomenal not a bad return. return. <laughs> yeah. When did you float? So that was 2005 October the 3rd 2005 on the AIM market. Yeah, so that's effectively 7 and a bit years from 98 when you formed the company. That's correct. So this is excellent. this is a really great story, isn't it? Because you basically relied on customer money rather than equity to build this business, didn't you? That's by right. finding good product market fit, finding customers, good gross margin by the sound of it, et cetera. Mm, mm. Okay, talk exactly. us through a bit of the stages. So you've raised a couple of hundred thousand or 150,000 from these this group. You start employing people there, don't you, I should think? Yes. So it was essential that we start to
0: employ especially web developers, but we could only afford one web developer. And... He came on board. He was, I think, our second employee, actually, Mike Shaw. Mike was absolutely terrific, apart from the fact that just before we were due to launch the website, he hadn't actually done anything. (laughs) (laughs) What had he (laughs) done? He'd done a lot of planning. So I remember distinctly saying to him, well, we've got to launch because we've told everybody we're going to launch. And it was October, and we said, October the 5th, we're going to be launching this website. The night before, there was nothing. So I went round to Mike's house and I said, Mike, we're going to sit here all night long. I'm going to feed you coffee and pizza and we're going to do this website together. <laughs> so we worked all night long. And we released the website in the morning and it worked. It was terrific.
1: Absolutely terrific. And
0: well, this is an early website as well because this is around about 2000 now. Well, this was look. a very, very early website. Uh, yeah. And the key to it was a little tiny search engine which in comparison to search engines these days, is absolutely hopeless. But then it was a state-of-the-art search engine called Muscat. Oh, yes. Uh, John Snyder. John Snyder's Muscat. Uh, So John licensed us Muscat, and we put this search engine on the website, and that's what really got the company going, because people were coming to our website to search for antibodies. So this little search engine built into the website, despite being really clunky today's standards was better than anything out there at the time. Right. So we were getting, suddenly we were getting thousands and thousands of hits for researchers wanting to find their antibody. And then it occurred to us that this is a pretty neat trick here. We're getting all of these hits and passing all these potential customers, researchers, through to all the companies that we were listing. We were listing three or four hundred oh, companies. Oh, you are reselling other people's products? We weren't reselling. Oh, you were no. right. Okay. No, we weren't reselling. We were just a, a miniature Google Within passing across leads, it was just a miniature Google because Google wasn't any good. You you don't need it anymore because Google wasn't any good in those days. Search engines were a bit rubbish. You got irrelevant results. We were just delivering very specific results and charging for those.
1: Um, No, No, you weren't even charging for it. So, where's the monetization?
0: So, So, that was the funny thing. So, we were getting a lot of criticism for, well, this is a crazy business model. What are you doing? You're not charging. You're not getting any money. But we had a trick up our sleeve, and that was that we had information. We had information about which antibodies these researchers wanted. Mm. So it was a really simple task then to say, well, we know what the top 10 antibodies are. We know what the top 20, we know what the top 50 are. All we need to do is systematically start to put these into our catalogue. And next time somebody searches on these, instead of going through to the competitors... We offer them our own product. Yeah. So we started to build up
1: this catalogue of own antibodies. And this took how long? This took several months to build up enough data to, to monetize it, did it? Or... It,
0: it only took, up, it took a few months to get enough data to know which antibodies yes, to, to put into the catalogue. Yeah. And then it was the hard work of actually going out there, either making the antibodies or sourcing them, finding the right supplier for them to actually put them onto our website with the... And quality control. And And quality control. So you set up a
1: manufacturing arm of antibodies or did you subcontract the manufacturing?
0: There's two parts to making an antibody. The one is the first part where you have to immunise your host animal and then take the spleen or the blood and make the antibodies from that. Yeah, And that is subcontracted out. And then the second part of that is to actually do the information part which is the data surrounding the antibody for what it can be used for and that actually turned out to be the most valuable part of the product. It wasn't the physical product which is the antibody that sits in the in the tube if you like it was actually the data surrounding the antibody and David and I realized this neat trick pretty quickly so we started to say well how can we not only add products but add data onto the products in the best possible way and the cheapest possible way. And it occurred to us that we should allow reviews, which are standard now. So we were one of the the first companies to actually allow customers to review the products and put stars on there, you know, one star or five stars. And the criticism we got for that was, you know, how tacky, how could you do that? It's not books. (laughs) These are very serious scientific products. Of course, now every single scientific product will have customer reviews on it. It's standard. Yes. Everything does. But we were the pioneers there. And that got us information about the products. So the products
1: became better and better over time as people knew how to use them based yes. on these customer reviews. Oh, that's excellent. And you managed to maintain the gross margin that you'd sold to David on day one? We did, yes, well we did. Well done. We so did. so we did. very we did. profitable business. Very profitable business. So we've got to the point where we have got product market fit. So how many people are you at this point when you've got the website launched uh, a few months later? We've, we've got about 10 people at this point. Yes,
0: We were in the plant biochemistry annex in a room... Not much bigger than this, which is what four by four, four by three meters. <laughs> four by three meters. Most of them were working at home, thankfully. So we had about four, and then at that point we knew that we had to move, and then we went to the Cambridge Science Park. So we found a small unit on the Cambridge Science Park, right. and have stayed there, moving from unit to unit ever since. Yeah. Until next year, when we're going to be moving, of course, to the Cambridge Biomedical
1: Campus. Next to Next yeah. to yeah Okay. So you've got 10 people, and how many people did you have at Float? At
0: Float, we must have been up at around 75 people at Float, and now we're just over 1,000.
1: And now you, to be a humorous and intelligent person, part of what you've done to grow the business is making sure the culture's right. Can we just talk about how you generate that culture, whether you knew what culture meant to start with, perhaps, how you generated and how you maintained it? I had no idea about culture in terms of
0: how important it is. And it's only in retrospect, I realise how essential it is for an organisation. The one thing that I truly believe is that the individual is actually bigger than the organisation. And if you start to really care and nurture your employees and and care about your employees, then you get the best from them, actually. Mm. And if you concentrate on the individual rather than saying, well, you work for this company and you've got to do this or you've got to do that, if you make sure the individual's needs are actually catered for, the reward you get back in the company is absolutely huge. And I'm so proud of the one thing that keeps coming out again and again in Abcam's culture is the word friendly. And when you go into Abcam, I hope you'll see that everybody is cheerful, they're friendly, they're helpful, and most of all, they're all supporting each other to become successful. Right. They want other people to be successful because that's how I built the company, I was very interested in developing my management team and developing people in their roles, making them successful in their roles. And that could mean just some people just wanted to come to work and, you know, pipette things into tubes and go home. And that's absolutely fine. Yeah. And if they're happy and successful and cheerful in that role, Mm. that's perfectly fine. Mm. Other people wanted to progress through the company and, you know, go rise up through the ranks and become executives. And again, that's great. And supporting them in that. But it's a quid pro quo, and they had to equally support the others around them. Mm. And that paid dividends because as a CEO, I found that I couldn't be successful without everybody around me really wanting to help me become successful. And that was key because having come from a background where I was an academic and then I had to transition my role from entrepreneur, early stage company, to public listed company, to high growth company, to what it is today. I had to reinvent myself a number of times. And if I hadn't had the support of people around me, such as Jim Warwick,
1: David Cleveley, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Yes, you've done amazing there. You've had to learn how to learn and pass on this culture without really necessarily having had any experience of doing it. That's absolutely correct. I hadn't been to business school. I had No idea.
0: I'd never, ever had people reporting to me. I hate to say, you know, you're managing people. Nobody wants to be managed. But, you know, working as a team and having people around me like that, I had no concept of that or no idea actually how to do it. I had no idea how to Mm -hmm. hire or fire. Mm -hmm. I had no idea about HR, no idea about culture, about
1: pay. Absolutely nothing. You're obviously a very, a very good listener. So before we move on to your angel investing, which you turned into another career, can we just talk about some of the things that you learned painfully during the journey on AppCam? Obviously, people have to leave the business. Some have to leave because they're not fitting in, etc. Maybe did you ever run out of cash again, et cetera?
0: Yes. I mean, there was a couple more occasions when we were nearly out of cash and we just about managed to scrape through again and get us to profitability. But I think you know, the lesson that I learned there was that having financial discipline is so important and crucial to that was getting Eddie Powell on board as our finance director very early on in the company so early on that we couldn't actually afford to pay poor
1: Eddie.
0: So, <laughs> well, you paid him in shares, actually. Well, no, we had to contract him out to other companies. Oh, really? <laughs> so when was this? How many people were you? Just 10 or so back then. Uh, I think when Eddie joined, we must have been about 15, very early on. We were 15 people at that right. point in the very, so sold very sold him all
1: this So, so
0: we hired him out because we couldn't afford to pay him. And then when we could afford to pay him, we got him back in full time. And Eddie brought that financial discipline to the company that was absolutely essential because with me... Being very entrepreneurial and just wanting to spend money all the time, the company wouldn't mm. have yeah, lasted yeah. very long. So, yes. so
1: Eddie was essential in the transitioning of the company to a profitable company. Good. So hiring and firing. I mean, all entrepreneurs need to learn that. It can be a very painful process. Can you give us some advice about that?
0: I can indeed, because very early on, I found it incredibly difficult to – it wasn't so much the hiring – Because I was so entrepreneurial, I could actually attract top people. And having Eddie on board very early on, people were intrigued. How can this little company attract such a wonderful finance director out of Marconi uh, to come and work in this little company? So I actually had no problem attracting good people. It was the firing of people that was the real difficulty. And the lesson that I actually learned there was that I spent too long allowing the wrong people in the wrong positions to carry on within the company to the point where when it really got so bad that I had to say, I'm sorry, this is not working out. I'm going to have to let you go. One, it was a real shock for the people you have to let go. Mm. And two, I was terrified what it would look like to all the people left in the company. I was being horrible. I was going to fire them next. This is what was going through my mind. The reaction I had was totally the opposite it was Jonathan why didn't you do this earlier why didn't you do this six months ago why did it have to go on so long and that was an absolute you know eye-opener for me and then the other thing that I learned and the mistake that I made was actually to make the whole firing process much easier
1: mm.
0: you have to give timely and honest feedback mm to regular appraisals, and not just regular appraisals, just chats, just chats about, this is going right, this is going wrong. And so when you come to actually make that regretful decision, the person would go, well, actually, do you know what, you're absolutely right, (laughs) I can't complain, you're right, I haven't done this, I haven't done that, and you've been telling me that for the last six months, and it makes
1: the whole process much, much easier.
0: So those are the two lessons I learned.
1: Yeah, that's so important. Mm. Thank you for listening to part one of Jonathan's Invested Investor podcast. We've been lucky enough to hear how he founded and has helped build the world-leading life science innovator Abcam. Starting off with a bucket full of antibodies to sell, he has helped transform the company into a £2.5 billion multinational success. Be sure to listen to part two, which follows Jonathan into his current passion, angel investing. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com. via a number of online podcast platforms and be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting and insightful content.